because I do feel like that I am an example of somebody that can achieve something even if you don't think you can you know there are so many people out there that are my age that have kids that think oh I can never do anything now it's too late you know I've missed my window of opportunity to do this and you know I just say to people it's never too late you just have to have the right people around you and I feel like I've been really lucky to have the right people around me the right support and if people can support you you can achieve anything it's never too late the Tom Screen podcast is owned and made possible by ethical marketing service if your business is struggling with google or facebook ads maybe you're frustrated figuring it out or there's a performance issue ethical marketing service has worked on hundreds of accounts and we can help in this area we offer a 30-day money-back guarantee and for every direct account we look after we sponsor a child in a developing nation with food water and education if you would like to find out if we can help it's a free no salesy consultation call and the link is in the description enjoy the episode thomas green here with ethical marketing service on the episode today we have sam bailey sam welcome welcome hello how are you hello marvelous how are you I'm good. Yeah, I'm just chilling. Nice cup of coffee. There's no one in the house. We're chilled. It's all good. Glad to hear it. Some people know you as the 2013 X Factor winner. Some people know you as Mrs. Potts. I think of you as an exceptional singer. The, The first deep and meaningful question is, Sam, who are you? I'm just, I'm just a girl that was brought up in modest background with you know our working family with great morals I'm a kind person um I see myself as being a team player um just just an all-round nice person that thinks of others before themselves I don't really see myself as being you know this big facade that's you know wow she won the x factor she's a celebrity I just see myself as someone that's plodding along and if I want a holiday, I'll go out and earn to get a nice holiday. And if I want a new Hoover, I'll do the same. And I just try to go about my life and, and, and enjoy it the best I can because you just don't know when it's your time, do you? Well, that's a somber thing to say. But, yeah, you just don't know. You live life like it's your last day on earth. So that's what I say. Well, thank you for the introduction. One of the first <laughs> things... Um, I wanted to ask you about was um, uh, the 2007 is when you first uh, applied to be on X Factor. And yeah. my my sort of framing, I guess, is that on, on the one hand, you're good enough to win the competition. And on the other hand, they don't, the first time you apply, they don't let you f- through the first round, which is they're yeah. pretty extreme in terms of um, both of those. So what do you make of that? I probably think it was just the wrong time in general. I mean, back in 2007, I I wasn't a prison officer. I was singing. So I was in a band. So um, I had one child. Um, so I, I think my story probably, I mean, I know that it's a, the, the X Factor is a TV show before it's a talent competition. You know, and I and I give that advice to anybody that's going on it because whenever the, there was a new episode of 
you know, or a new season that would start, I, I would get people that were on the show, like, you know, or were auditioning, asking me for advice. And I would always say, you have to remember it's a TV show before it's a talent competition. So you have to have something interesting about yourself because people will grab onto that. People don't want someone to go on there and be completely in that mould. They want someone to be just a little bit outside the box. And I feel I feel like the fact that I was a prison officer was slightly out of the box of the norm, you know, because I didn't look like a prison officer. Um, and, I, and I guess that people clung on to that. You know, I'm, I'm a mum. I was a mum of two, married mum of two. Um, so I, I think before I went any further, with the X Factor and with regards to everybody else's, like asking me for advice, I would always say that, that you have to remember that it's a TV show for a talent competition. And when, when I did it the first time in 2007, I don't think I was interested enough. I don't, you know, because I sat into a mould. I was a singer. I was singing in pubs and clubs at the time. They want somebody that's got something different about them. And the fact that I worked in a male lifeless prison with 700 murderers, you know what I mean? It's like you think about, oh, my God, she does that for a job and then she opens her gob and that comes out. But I didn't know that at the time. But when I look back, I understand why I was picked that time. I didn't go on the show going, I'm going to be more interesting. It was just that I just happened to have a bit more of an interesting life the second time around I did it. And I think I was a bit of an emotional wreck. And because I was a little bit older as well, it was almost like last chance saloon for me because I was getting old. You know, I was, you know, getting to the stage where I think I'm going to give up this career because it's just, you know, it's not paying my bills. So I feel like the second time round, I was more what they were looking for. But I was also like, I was gunning for it. I was like, I I wanted a new extension on my house. That's the reason I did it. I didn't do it because I wanted fame. I just wanted some money so that I could get a new extension on my house. I still live in the same house. Where I'm sat right now is my garden, you know? like, And now I've got AstroTurf in my garden. I've got a nice kitchen. I've got a downstairs toilet. You know, these are all things that I wanted, but I couldn't afford to do that on the wages that I was on at the time. So I feel like I'd done what I set out to do. I didn't want the fame. I never, and it's not that I, I wouldn't want to be that famous that I couldn't go for a poo without someone standing outside the door, you know, or just going down to the post office to post something or, you know, I, I didn't want that. I don't, I don't think I'd cope well with that. So in terms of your ability, would you say it was significantly different from 2007 to 2013? No, I think I could sing the crap out of everything when in, when in 2007. I just don't think I was interested enough. I think it was just the wrong time. So for those who perhaps do get rejected, or it doesn't necessarily have to be X Factor, but it can be lots of different things. It could be a job or, you know, you could apply it to, to many things. It may just be, you know, something that doesn't include their ability at all. Yeah, I mean, you might be amazing at your job, but you might not be very talkative. Like, say so if you go and apply for a job working in an office 
and you walk into the thing, you might be the cleverest person in that room. You might be able to do everything on that computer that they all can't do, but you haven't got that, hi, yeah, I'm blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? But there are a lot of people that are like that. And it's, it's kind of a shame in that sense. But for the business that I'm in, it's like when you, when you go for a, for something like the X Factor or Britain's Got Talent, they want someone to captivate you and literally be like, holy poo, like, look, this person on this stage is just mind-blowing. Like, it's like the, I call it the Susan Boyle effect, you know, like when Susan Boyle came out, I mean, I was called, what was I called? God, oh, God. They called me something she was called Subo and I was called something else Louis Wolves called me I can't remember what it was but um when she first came out to the stage people were quick to judge oh my god what is this walking out onto the stage and then she opened her gob and it's that it's it's that that cap- that makes your hairs on your arms like you go oh my days you know that's that's amazing and I think I walk out for my audition the second time round, and I had um, heels on that I could not walk in. I mean, why I put heels on, I do not know. I clomped in the room like an elephant, um, wearing the most hideous clothes. What was I thinking? Um, and then I walked in and then opened my gob. And even I can't even watch that audition. I cringe because I think I sound bad. I could have done it better. But that's just me. Like when I go into that room and audition, if I was to go in and do that same song again, I would have done it a hundred times better because my breathing was out. I sang the wrong words. Like I look back and I think I was a rough diamond. I was someone that I felt like the judges could see something in and they saw the they saw the opportunity there. I mean, my transformation from my first audition with the judges to the first show on TV in the live in the live shows, that transformation, people were waiting for that. You know, I'd lost weight, not because I was told to, but because I was so stressed. If you could bottle stress and drink it, I would, because I lost so much weight just from the stress of what was going on. And the difference between me and them, and I think that's what people like like to see is is that not only someone can sing, but that transformation from turning them into this me and my frumpy flipping top that I was wearing, my dodgy heels, into this woman that's got extensions in and like this outfit that I would never have picked up or even purchased in my life, you know, having a stylist and having makeup on, false eyelashes and all this sort of stuff. And I think that's another thing that people invest in because they cannot wait to see the difference between that to that. And that's another thing I feel like they look at, which is why I've said to people in the past, go to that audition as you. Don't try to go as someone else. Because when I look back, I feel like that's another thing that they look for is somebody that they can mould and they can they can do something with and they can because they don't want somebody to be a glorified rock star to just turn up on that day that they can't do anything with. People love to see a transformation. They love to see someone. Like, that's why loads of people watch all those programs where they get Got Kwan to come and sort out their wardrobes and stuff because they can't wait to see the transformation 
of how somebody can look you know I'd, I'd love to go on one of those programs if i'm honest but it this is what the people invest in and i watch it as well i love watching things like that where you just see someone you know just transform into a beautiful butterfly not saying that i'm a butterfly but what i'm saying is 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 that's what the show's all about it's not just about how you sing it's about what they can do with you to make you look like an absolute star on that stage and i feel like they achieved that with me they they did they they made me look amazing like every single night i didn't feel comfortable i mean i would have preferred to have gone on stage in a tracksuit but i i i understood the assignment you know and i just got on with it because at the end of the day i still wanted my extension still wanted my downstairs toilet you had your priorities yeah i did that's, well, what, I wanted. that's what i wanted you know i did want to also ask you about 2010 britain's got talent mm-hmm. um did the did the two differ how much were they similar what was your experience there um it, if i'm honest i can't actually remember that much difference in the audition process to britain's got talent and and that and an x factor it was pretty much the same sort of thing i don't i couldn't even tell you which one was which because the whole process is i mean because obviously they film it and they film i don't even know I, i mean i was never filmed on it and it was again you know practice come back we'll see you soon you know you know, in a few years' time, you never know, you might see me on The Voice. <laughs> you know, I might go on and secretly surprise people because I'm sure people do come back. I feel like that programme, uh, Britain's Got Talent, you know, for me going on there, there are so many people that are singers go on there. You've got to have something really, really special to go on that show and show people. And I feel like they probably found somebody that year and it's it's so strange because the year that i did the x factor 2013 that very same year um in january i got a ppi payment you know like when you claim your ppi back and um we booked a holiday to florida for me my husband and my two children so we went out to florida but just before we went out to florida we were sat watching the x factor in december and I applied because we were sat on the sofa and, the ki- and I said to the kids, wouldn't it be funny to see mummy on there? What would you be like? And they'd be like, oh, mum, we'd love it. So, you know, at the end of the programme, it says, would you like to be on the next season, blah, 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 apply here. So I did. Um, I didn't hear anything for ages. And then in January, we went to, Feb- Jan- it might have been January, February, March or something like that. I don't know when it was. Um we went out to Florida on this holiday with our PPI money. And um, whilst I was out there, I got an email saying, we want you to come to Cardiff um, on Friday. And we were getting back on the on the Wednesday or something. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, they want me to audition. So I had to go to Cardiff to do this audition. And But the weirdest thing is, whilst we was in Florida, before just before that audition they had a thing called um the american idol experience which is in one of the parks and it's literally a a replica of the american idol stage and 
audience. So there's like five, six hundred people in the audience and um and the stage and everything. And you go in to this room at the back into like a record it was like a recording studio kind of thing, and you audition. Like this is early in the morning. So they were doing the auditions in the morning. So you went along and I went in there and I said, What song do you want to sing? And I sang. And they was like, gave me a ticket and said, You're back for the semi-finals. So I had to go back for the semi-finals in the afternoon. Um, and in those semi-finals, they were on stage. So like audiences could queue up and go in and watch as if they was watching a TV show. It was part of the, like a ride experience, I guess, for the audience. I got up on the stage, sang, you flew to the final. And then you walk round the park with this lanyard on that says, I'm in the final of American Idol. And then people spot you as you're going around going, oh, my God, I saw you today. And also on the screens all around the park, there's literally the video of the thing as well. So everyone can see you. And then the final was at like seven o'clock at night. So I had to go back. I mean, I'm dressed like a tourist. I'm wearing shorts, <laughs> T-shirt. I've got no clothes or anything. And I go and I sing again in the final and I won. And I got the ticker tape and I got everything. It was like I'd won American Idol. It was crazy. Those TV cameras everywhere. Um, the audience were going crazy. I walked around the park that night and they're all literally going crazy. People coming up to me, asking for photos with me and everything. It was bizarre. But I also won um, a cut through to the boot camp section of American Idol. But I couldn't do it because I wasn't American. So I down, I gave it to the person that came second. Um, so you can do that. You can sign it over to the person that comes second because I couldn't do it. So this guy got onto onto American Idol's boot camp stages um, and I went home. And it was so weird because not long after that, I auditioned for The X Factor. And then I got the ticker taken again, so twice in one year. One from American Idol and one from that. And I contacted American Idol and said to them that I did the American Idol experience and I won, blah, 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 and all this. And I said, I've just won the X Factor in the UK. Um, and they invited me because they was closing the American Idol experience in thinking they wanted me to go to the closing party and um, invited me out there to come to it and everything. And I couldn't go because I was pregnant and I was really busy. But I just find it so... I believe in fate and I believe in things happen for a reason. And I feel like I got a taste of that experience so earlier on in that year. And then to get that again was just absolutely mind blowing for me. Really was. Did it, did it give you like the, how much did that maybe improve your confidence or give you the confidence to do well in, um, in the X Factor? See, I never saw myself winning the show. But I saw myself going out there and smashing it every time because I knew that I would. I was nervous, but I was the only contestant in that year that knew all the words to the songs because I'd sang them all. So you've got contestants that are stressing like mad. I mean, these are young kids. You have to remember that the first two weeks of the show, the other two overs got... Um, voted off so it was just me I was the only over in the competition and the rest of them were all like 
18, not, there was no older ones in the competition except for me. So I was like the mother. I was the one that was teaching them how to use a washing machine in the house. You know, I was that person. So I didn't have anyone of my own age sign up kind of group. And But at the same time, I'd been around the block. So when they was all in nappies, I was out gigging. So for me, it was like I understood the assignment that every single week I would go out there and I would smash it. And there's there's a footballer from Leicester called Alan Young who used to play for Leicester City and he was supporting me the whole journey through. And he he said to me, um, one game at a time, because that was advice that he got, you know, never look at the prize, never look so far ahead at the prize, just take one game at a time. And I did the same thing, but one show at a time, one performance at a time. And whenever the votes would ever come in, I had no idea what the public perception was because I didn't look at social media. I didn't. The only thing I cared about was talking to my kids of the night time, getting some sleep. And I'm one of these people that I can't be late for anything. So we had literally um, a group of researchers from ITV that would look after us on a daily basis. And if we had to be up at eight o'clock and ready to go somewhere at eight o'clock in the morning, I would be there at half seven with my bag. And I was the only one that did that. Everybody else would be, oh, my God, my hair. Oh, my God, I've not got this. Oh, someone's still in their pyjamas. I would be sat there with my bag, with a cup of tea, waiting. And and that was noted by a lot of people. Like, I've always been like that. There's like a respect thing that I have about being late. It's, It's just... That's just me. So I was very organised and with regards to the songs every single week, I felt like I I was lucky because I don't think there was, I think there was only a couple of weeks where I didn't actually know the song. But when you're musically minded, you can kind of, and because I'd, I'd spent so many years learning songs, I mean, I used to do gigs and get in the back of the van and the band leader would say, you're singing this tonight. So I'd have to learn it on the journey up. And we we would be there in two and a half hours and I'd have to know the song. So I was kind of used to learning stuff on the, on, on the bounce, like really quickly. Um, and I got on with it, you know, I did, I, it, they'd give us our songs. Um, I'd go up to my room. I was on my own. I didn't share with anyone. Um, and I'd literally go up to my room learn my shit, go on stage and perform it to the best that I knew. And and that's all I cared about. I didn't I didn't go, oh, I hope I get through to next week. Oh my God, I'm I'm gonna win this competition. It it it, it was never about that for me. It, I don't ever remember thinking I really want to win this competition. I just remember caring about how I performed the song because if you perform to the best of your ability and you don't win You've still won because you've gone out there and smashed it because everybody will look back at those performances and go, God, do you remember when Sam did that? Oh, my God, amazing. And people still talk about it now. I get sent and tagged in all the videos that I've done. But when I look back at them now, even though at the time I smashed it, I know I could do better now. So I'm constantly going, oh, I wish I could go back and do it all again because I know that now my voice has evolved even more and I've learned so more, I could go back and do it again and smash it even more. 
So I'm constantly trying to better myself. Um, but I know that if you give me a song within an hour, I'll be able to sing it and then I'll go out and smash it. Happy days. So I never really sort of saw my eye on the prize. I already knew that I'd won because in my eyes, I, I just wanted recognition so that I could get better gigs. So I knew that was going to happen because I'd been on TV so many weeks. So I knew that I was going to leave here and get better work. I didn't, I didn't go on the show and think, oh, my God, you know, and I've done so well, I'm going to win now. Never in a million years. I never looked at it like that. I even said to Nikki and Luke, uh, the, we drove back after getting voted through to the semi-finals, which then changed from the studios, Fountain Studios, to the arena. And I remember that journey back and all three of us were sat in the back and it was so quiet because all of us were just like, what the fuck just happened? Like, we've all just made it into the finals of the X Factor. And these boys are 17. so. I felt the need to say something. So I was in the back of the car and I said, look, boys, I said, we have to enjoy next week. Regardless of what happens, we're all winners. It doesn't matter who wins this competition. If you win, Nikki, if you win, Luke, if I win or whatever, we've all done something amazing. And next week is all about us three. I mean, at the night of the final, you know, we had Elton John, we had flipping the killers we had one direction robbie williams all these people that were there because of us and that was a bit of a head fuck for me like i just found that a little bit like whoa everyone's here because of us it was it was just really mind-blowing that three people could create this Thousands of people that were all there to watch one of us be the successor of the X Factor 2013. And that blew my mind. But I, I never once saw my eyes on the prize. I just was in the moment at that time. But I wished I'd documented it with phones. And I never took, I, did, I didn't take many pictures and I wish I had. I wish I'd remembered more because it was a massive blur, the final. I just, I just remember getting through it and going, did that just happen? And I don't really remember much about the final, apart from the fact that I was like a deer in the headlights for the majority of it. It's crazy. Well, thank you for um, the explanation. I also think uh, your answer of um, one game at a time, it gives me sort of an insight in terms of what I was going to ask you next, which was about your first, the first live audition of 2013. And it's the the infamous video. Um, I read in the book, your book, Daring to Dream, that at the time it said that the video had 11 million views. Now it has 42 million views. So there's something about that video. And I wanted to ask about what your experience was, which was you're, you've basically you're going out to do something which is pretty intimidating. You go into a room and there's four, let's say, influential people waiting for you to perform. And it's all going to be be broadcast to millions of people what's that like um well it was really weird because we were there for a long time i had no food i've not eaten the the xl in london they had no like vending machines no nothing there was nowhere to get food there was no cap no nothing and we was there all day 
And my audition wasn't until later on in the day. And when I auditioned and I went into the room and done my song, for a split second after I performed, there was like a dead silence where everyone was just like that. And then, because I didn't bat an eyelid with me really until that moment. And then after I'd finished the song and I walked out of the room, I got chased by like researchers and there was all like, we need to do some more filming with you. You can't go home yet. Um, we need to do you, like they wanted to film me walking in um, as if I was going for my audition, um, which is standard procedure because, again, it is a TV show. So I had to walk in as if I was walking in because they want to set the scene. Um, so, and then there was lots of filming of me just sitting and waiting around. So as if I've been waiting around kind of thing. And there was like interviews and stuff like that. And I just thought, well, oh, this, this feels really weird because there was hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people there. And when I walked out from my audition and I walked back into the room, the holding room where there was just loads of people, everyone went crazy. Like I just won the lottery, like, and everyone, it was just really, really bizarre. And then me and the hubby, I had my um, number. On, on the front of me here and I took it off and I put it on his glove box and it stayed there for ages and ages and ages. Um, it literally was stuck there and it's, um, I don't know if you can see it, it's just there. So that right there is my number. And 116212, right? That's the one, 116212. So that was literally behind me. Um, that was in the and we we drove and we didn't speak. We just didn't didn't really speak the whole journey back. It was just like a just it was just so bizarre the whole process. I was very emotional because for me singing a song like Listen, I'd spent so so many years trying to to get recognition for my voice. And not really succeeding. And every show that I'd ever done when I was in a band and I was like doing all these different things, everybody that I'd worked with had all said, oh, my God, you know, you should do the X Factor. Or, oh, my God, your voice is sensational. I'd never had anyone come up to me or heard of anyone saying to me, oh, God, she's shit. You know, never. It's always been, oh, my God, like, you're amazing. But I just never had that opportunity years and years ago um a record label wanted to sign me and I'm I'm I was my early 20s at the time and um I got taken to this record label quite a well-known record label and they sent me away with a guy um to work on me and they basically tried to get me to act like I was more like a black person and they wanted me to dress like I was more street. Um, and I, I went along with it for a couple of weeks and then I was, and then I disappeared. We had no phones back then. So you could literally disappear. And I, I disappeared and I said, I don't want to do it. I didn't want, I don't want someone to change me. And that's not me. I, I, I'm a ballad singer. I'm not like the next Rihanna or. You know, I mean, this is before Rihanna was probably around, but, you know, I, it just wasn't me. And I'd had all these opportunities, but 
the difficulty in the business that you're in now is that the, the business is very shallow and it looks at the person rather than looking at how great they are at singing. I know so many singers that are absolutely killer and they literally would wipe the floor with 80% of the people that are in the charts and they'll never get anywhere because they're four foot wide. They might not have a straight nose. They might have glasses. They might not dress right. And I just think it's a, a real damn shame because I know I could give you, I could reel off 10 people that I know from the circuit that sing on the, you sing in the dog and duck every Friday night that will wipe the floor with half the people that are in the charts. Half the people in the charts, and I say half the people, there's, there's a lot of people that can, but there's so many people in the charts that are just there to look pretty and they mind. And I, and I, I've got real beef about that, really have, because I've grafted, grafted for years and years. And I can sing. I've never mimed in my life ever. And I can go up on the stage any night and sing in the, in the same key as the original key, you know, of any song that's really difficult to do, to do. I've never transposed a key to make it easier for me to sing. I've always sang in the original key. And then you go and watch a concert and you've paid stupid money to go to a concert and they're miming. It's like, what am I paying for? May as well just go home and press play, you know? It's just, it just really frustrates me because there are so many singers out there that just, I feel, deserve that recognition and they don't get it because there's people in the charts that just, you know, are thinner than them or are better looking than them or, you know what I mean? It's like, I just, just don't like that side of the industry. I really don't, which is why I like the concept of the voice. You know, just that first bit where you don't actually get to even see the person. You just get to hear them. And that, that to me, is a magical thing. Well, I'll, I'll get round to the context here. But the question is around, have many people told you um, when they've listened to you that they've cried? Yes. I get it all the time. And now I see it as a little bit like, you know what? If you've cried, I've done my job because it means you felt it. And I get that a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm at the moment I'm in Beauty and the Beast and I sing the title song and, and I, I make a lot of people cry. And I think, you know, it's because of the moment and because of what it is and how it's portrayed. I've, I've always, I've been told many, many years ago, I mean, I'm going back 23 years now, I was advised by somebody to, not to just sing a song, but to make people feel it as well. And my motto is don't just sing it, sell it, you know, because when you go out on stage and you sing a song, I sing to vent. So I get a lot of stuff off my chest when I sing because I'm not an, I'm not an angry person. I don't get angry a lot. So when I sing a song like, and I'm telling you, I vent and I get, I think about whatever's pissed me off that week and I sing it. And then everyone goes, Oh, I felt that. Oh, but, but because it's true and it's truth. And, and I teach this as well. I mean, I'm, um, I teach students at college, um, 
I have done in the past. I've not done it at the, at the, at, in the minute, but I did do it for a bit. And teaching that concept to people and to young young kids, you know, that you can use singing as therapy because my, I've got a teenage daughter and she, you know, she's a teenager. So there's a lot of crap going on in teenagers' lives with hormones and all that sort of stuff. And I say to these kids that I teach, I say, you can channel so much emotion for a song. It doesn't even necessarily have to be about what you're singing about. It can have the slightest bit of truth in there. So if you're singing a song, um, hero, Mariah Carey, for example, you can sing, sing that about your grandma that you lost. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be about love or anything like that. You can just channel that. I'm singing this song for you. And then you can get so much stuff off your chest. And if people sit there and go, I believe every single word she's just said, I've done my job. If I can make people cry and I can make people get an emotion out, I've done what I set out to do. And that was to make people feel that emotion. I don't just go out on stage and sing something. I sing it with heart. And that's, that's what makes people cry. I'll be like, tick. I made people cry today. <laughs> well, yeah, the um, y- you did make me cry with the, with the first uh, audition. I'm not much of a crier. I don't know whether you can sense that from me, but um, <laughs> the the research for our conversation and it happened again in the sort of I might describe it as your second audition, which uh, I know it's televised audition because I know there's a lot before the show, but um, it's the the song "Who's Loving You." Where you yeah. described it as belting it out, which I yeah. which I loved. Uh, do you want to share a little bit about that? Um, so that's a song that I had been singing probably since I was about fourteen, fifteen. It was kind of my go-to song. I think probably everybody that's really young would would sing that song. I mean, I I think I was probably about. 14 i mean i was very small for my age as well um the stars in their eyes wanted me to go on and do michael jackson um and sing that song i don't quite how they don't know how they was going to make that happen but i sounded just like michael jackson when i used to sing that song when i was like 14 15 um and i loved it and it's always been like a song that i would have sang at talent competition so for me, that song was like full circle to get to perform that in front of so many million people and a and a, an arena of four thousand, five thousand people. That was just mind blowing. The more people you give me, the better I am and the better I feel on stage. I will soak it up because that that didn't scare me at all. I think the lesser people, the more it was more nerve wracking singing into a room with four people staring at me than it would have been. 20,000 people staring at me. I mean, I've sang live in front of 90 something thousand people and I loved it. So, but why is that? I I don't know because it's just like you, you can't bail out that. I think that's the, that the thing that I liked is like you're there that the adrenaline's pumping and it's that feeling. It's, 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 it's just like a, it's like a drug, you know, you go out there and you stand in the middle. I was at Twickenham and it was just packed with people and I got to sing that and I got to sing We Are The Champions on the middle of the pitch when Leicester got promoted to the Premier League and that in itself was just 
insane. It was emotional and I was living it up and, you know, singing Who's Loving You, I feel like it's kind of full circle for me because that song was one of the songs that my dad used to love me singing because it was always a song that I did when I was doing um, talent competitions and I did quite a few of them when I was younger. Um, but, yeah, I, I remember singing that song and I just loved it. I mean, I got to sing the full song, but they edit it to make it shorter. Um, and then I think they asked me to sing another one and I sang Run To You, uh, Whitney Houston. And uh, and that's that's the a, a strangest thing ever because now I'm really good friends with Alan Rich, who's who wrote Run To You. You know, he's, he's seen me perform that song so many times and he's a bit of a fan of mine. And I just think, you know, your life just takes it massive turn of events you know like all these different situations you get put in and you know singing that song that week and I think that was the week that my family ran out there was like 20 25 of my family all run out on stage I'm not sure if it was that week or the week or the week before I can't remember but yeah one experience crazy before we move on to winning and perhaps what's um what you've done after, I did want to yeah. ask you about one more thing about perhaps prior to X Factor, which is um when you got the job um as a prison guard. And I know that people have asked you about that, but I haven't heard anyone ask you about your first day. Because thinking about it from your perspective, <laughs> I mean, if anything, that's maybe equally um nerve wracking, maybe is the oh, right I was word. Petrified. I was absolutely petrified. Um, It's like walking into a cult. Um, I mean, obviously, I've done all my training by that time because you go to, like, prison officer school, if you will, where you have to stay there. Um, And it's it's, that training kind of prepares you, but nothing can prepare you for that first day in uniform walking around because as far as the prisoners are concerned, they see new meat. They see somebody else that they can try to manipulate and somebody else they can com- try and condition or break. They try to break you. There are certain prisoners that will try to break you on your first day. And that is petrifying. And you have to stand your ground. And I generally believe that me being a prison officer prepared me so much for what was to come after. It really did. I don't think I would have coped as well if I hadn't have been a prison officer before. I really don't. So you did have people attempt to take advantage when it was your first day? Yeah, 100%. They see, they see fresh meat and they're like straight away, all right, miss, how you doing, miss, like this. And they just try to goad you, you know, because they want to break you. They want to make you feel so uncomfortable. But you've just, I mean, I'm streetwise. I come from a rough council estate. So I grew up with people like that. I grew up with, you know, and and you have to go into being a prison officer with the mentality that they're already being judged. So you're not there to judge them. Whatever they've done, you are not there. So you have to treat them like as you would anybody walking past a street that says hello to you. So as long as you've got that mutual respect with a prisoner, you'll gain that respect back. And like, during sort of um, times where they, they're on the wing and they're chilling out or whatever 
and they'd come up to you and say, do you want a game of pool, miss? And then you'd play pool with them and then they'd say something, you know, it's a little bit on the knuckle. you go, don't be a dickhead, come on. You know, and that banter that you can have where you're friendly but not friends. So there's a there's a big sort of line. And I worked with some of the best the best prison officers you'll ever you'll ever meet. Um and they were great. They was old school. They'd been prison officers for years and they had so much respect off prisoners. And and you learn from that and you learn how to gain these different layers and, and thick layers of skin so that when someone does try to break you, you can stand up with your with your shoulders back and your head held high and go, no, you're not not today, darling. You know, and they they know they can't break you, and it's just like a a mutual respect. You know, you they're there to do their time. You're there to help them do their time sufficiently, respectfully, and safely, whilst caring for them and making sure that they don't get into any sort of gangs or or anything like that. Because there are some people in there that were not very nice but there are also some prisoners in there that were actually really nice and respectful because I, I, from day one, you have to have that mentality of you can't judge them. When you, you, you'd meet someone, you'd meet a prisoner and you would be chatting to them and that you, you know, they talk about their family and their life and you're like, Oh mate, that's, that's lovely, blah, blah, blah. And then you go and read their file and see what they've done and you go, because you would never know. And but if I'd have gone in to meet that person, knowing I'd have been on my back foot a little bit, you know, because you think, Jesus, you did that to a person and you wouldn't be with them the same. So I'd never wanted to read what somebody done before meeting that person because I want to know them before knowing what they'd done. And I feel like that helped me a lot to to be able to bond on a professional level with prisoners and be able to carry on and be safely. And, you know, you'd be in prison and sometimes because you're a woman, if there was ever any trouble, some prisoners would try to protect the woman because, uh, but you, you couldn't let them protect you, even though in the outside world, you would let a guy protect you. But inside prison, they could use that to try and condition you to so that you felt protected. And that's why in some cases there are women in prison that fall for prisoners because they feel more protected by a guy that's in prison than they would on the outside. It's really bizarre, but, you know, there are so many things that you have to have your guard up about and you have to be able to sort of go, you know, you know, if a prisoner, for example, saw me come in, uh, I never really wore makeup, but... um Say, for example, I had really red eyes and I'd been crying for whatever reason. The prisoner noticed it. Are you all right, miss? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, all good. Thanks a lot, you know, blah, blah, blah. You'd never sort of go to them, yeah, I just had a bad day because then they'll be like trying to be there for you. And this, that's the first part of like someone trying to condition you to into the next thing you know, you're having full-blown conversations outside their cell telling them your problems and stuff like that you know what I mean and you should never let that guard down you know don't talk too much about your kids I could never go back to work in a prison because then they've got tvs they watch the final they know who I am they've seen what my kids look like 
it's too dangerous for me to go and work back in the prison service. But I did enjoy my time there. I did enjoy it. I enjoyed, you know, helping people and working with people and and helping them become better people because eventually they will get out, some of them. Well, you mentioned how um, it's given you an extra uh, thick skin or it's toughened you up. Have you got any thoughts about how um, you might teach your kids t- uh, how to be tough but um, not encourage them to be prison guards or need to do that? Um, I think I want my kids to be mentally strong. It's not all about, I mean, I pulled my son out of school purely because he retaliated by hitting somebody on the back, but he did it to protect himself. But I pulled him out because I don't want him to think that violence is the answer. So he's now in a specialist school. He goes to a, a special school for um, for children with autism or, or ASD on the spectrum. So he started last week. But, you know, I don't want my kids to ever think that violence is the answer. My husband, as much as, he, you know, if someone hit my daughter, he'd go, yeah, back then. Because that's, you know, he's a lad. He's a lad's lad, you know, like that's how he was brought up. But I've said to my kids, because I've seen prisoners that have never done anything wrong in their life, but got into a fight with someone, protecting somebody else, punch somebody, they've hit the floor, cracked their head open and consequently died. And now they're, they're doing a life sentence for it. You know, and I just think to myself, I don't want my kids to think that's okay, regardless of what it's, you're so much stronger person if you walk away from a situation or you use your ability to be able to talk someone down or or talk yourself out of a situation rather than, you know, getting violent. I mean, I would have said a completely different story 35 years ago because I, I I did have to stick, for my, stick up for myself when I was younger, you know, like from the age of, well, 30-odd years ago when I was 14, 15, I was always fighting, always. Like if someone ever said anything to me, I'd, I'd grab them. <laughs> But that's because I was surrounded by people that did exactly that. And if you didn't do it, people would be like, what are you doing? What are you pushing out for? So I had to learn to stick up for myself from a very young age. And I think that's why I was good at my job in the prison service. And I say good, or they're very like, I wasn't the best. But I understood half the people that was in there because they come from the same background as me. Well, thank you for that. It's good advice. Um, the the uh, the winning of the X Factor. Have you got anything that you wanted to share that you perhaps haven't previously? Um, gosh, winning the X Factor. Just the fact that I don't really remember much. I remember when they said my name, and then Dermot said, "What are you? What's the first thing you're going to do now? You get to go home." And anybody would have thought I'd have said, "Oh, spend some time with the kids or whatever." But no, I said I wanted. I couldn't wait to go to the Leicester City, Man City football <laughs> match. Um, to my husband's demise, he was like, um, "Really?" <laughs> I was like, "I just couldn't wait to go and see a football match." I had a season ticket. I was like, "I just couldn't wait to go," you know. And I ended up singing at half time at that game. It was great. Well, congratulations on everything that you've achieved there. In terms of um, what's next for you. Anything you want to share? 
Um, well, obviously, I'm in Beauty and the Beast until January. Um, by the time I finish, it will be 18 months of me being a teapot. Um, I am going to miss it. Being in a Disney musical is just has just been the best experience. I've loved it. I've loved working for Disney. I feel like because of the last couple of years of what we've been through with the pandemic and stuff, Disney have been really great in in looking after us and and making sure that you know we're comfortable with everything and I just feel like I've worked for a really really good company and after that is finished we're going on a big holiday which is great um which is well deserved my kids have really sacrificed a lot with me not being here and with my son going to a specialist school I've been fighting for the last two years for that um with the local authority the government and everything and I've banged a lot of tables, emails, Zoom calls, meetings, um, therapy sessions. I've done a lot and I've done it all in my spare time whilst being away. And I've finally managed to do it. So a major pat on the back for myself and the husband for putting up with the kids while I've been away. But I think um, for me, I just want to, I want to do a couple of cruises. I want to um get back onto cruises and get out of the country for a bit you know do some do some work abroad um but just enjoy life at home there's a few people that want me to audition for certain things um and certain shows but I don't I'm not too sure if I want to go back straight out on a tour um I don't think my husband would like that very much I think he'd probably divorce me if I said I was going to do that um, so yeah, I do want to spend a bit of time at home. There's a lot of things that I want to do. So yeah, I think it's just a case of seeing what happens. You know, we don't know what's around the corner, do we? You think you'd ever be a judge? On the X Factor? Oh God, no. I mean, I'd be a great judge. A, a, a judge should be somebody that's been around a bit. A judge should be somebody that understands the assignment, and that's somebody that is a little bit mature, maturer. I mean, on the X Factor, you've had all sorts of judges on there. I think Rita Ora was a judge on there once. I got in trouble for saying that, you know, I don't think I'd want to be on the show if Rita Ora was a judge when I was on because what could she possibly teach me? You know, I'm, I'm double her age. I've done way more than what she has. I, I want a judge to be somebody that, I mean, look at the lineup we had that year. Louis Walsh, band manager, he knows the business. He knows what people are looking for. Sharon, again, knows the business, uh, has been around the block. Nicole Scherzinger, classically trained singer, been in a pop band. Um, and then Gary Barlow that was singing in pubs and clubs like me. So you've got four different people that have all got knowledge in the business. I'm not saying that Rita Ora hasn't, but I don't think she could teach me or critique me when I sing live and she doesn't sometimes. And, you know, and she's one of that category that I feel that great singer, she looks great, but I do, I do feel like she was just fed it from a very young age. She was at drama school. They, they said to her at drama school, you're going to be a star. She's not done the graft, if that makes sense, which isn't her fault, but she's not. I don't think a judge should be somebody that's just come straight out of something and gone straight into that. I think you've got to have.
be able to understand every contestant on the graph that they've had and she hasn't and there's you know for me to be a judge I think I'd be great at it but I'm not famous enough to be a judge but I would do it I've judged talent competitions before and I think you know people value my opinion because of the because of my past history with with performing so I started off as a blue coat you know so I'm I'm taking that as kind of a yes is that a do you think I'd do it I'd do it but I don't think I'd ever get asked and I know in fact I know I'd never get asked purely because I'm not famous enough which is fine by me because I I never (laughs) wanted that I think I sit quite pretty at the moment yeah I'd love to do more tv stuff um I've you know presenting or anything like that I'd love to do all that acting I'd love to get into tv acting that would be a great thing to do but um with regards to being a major pop star I'm not it's not my bag to be honest I don't think there's enough money in it these days to go out and you know and make records gigging's the thing that makes you the money and and I, and I love doing it you know I love performing um I do the odd occasional gig outside of Beauty and the Beast and it's it's an opportunity for me to sing the crap out of a few songs and have a great night so yeah I think I'm quite lucky well congratulations on everything you've achieved um you. I meant what I said uh, I think you're an exceptional singer and um prepping for our conversation it was it was really it was really nice so um oh, from my Thank perspective you. is there anything i should have asked you about today no no i think any I'm closing a, thoughts um well my closing thoughts is is that i hope that in 10 years time i still have a story to tell that people are interested in because i do feel like that i am an example of somebody that can achieve something even if you don't think you can you know like for me my goal was to get my extension on my house you know there are so many people out there that are my age that have kids that think oh I can never do anything now it's too late you know I've missed my window of opportunity to become a maternity nurse or to do this and You know, I just say to people, it's never too late. You just have to have the right people around you. And I feel like I've been really lucky to have the right people around me, the right support. And if people can support you, you can achieve anything. It's never too late. So for all those people out there that wanted to get that job that they've always wanted to do, that left college because they wanted to have kids or fell pregnant or whatever, it's never too late positive message to end on daring to dream sam thank you for being a great guest today thank you darling